This is the East Traumacast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. I say hello and welcome to another exciting episode of our trauma cast. Today we're going to be discussing emergency inguinal hernia bailout. This is a great topic, I think, because we have all been in the operating room in the middle of the night and uh, wondered what our bailout options are, so I thought it would be nice if we had kind of a nice overview to go over some techniques, um, some operative approaches, some thought processes, and uh, how we're going to manage these disasters. Uh, I'd like to start off with our introductions. Joining, us, joining me as a, another moderator is Dave Morris. Hello, Dave. Hi, Carrie. And we also have two uh, great guests with us, Sharin and Mike. Uh, why don't we start with you, Sharin? Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Carrie. Thanks a lot. I'm calling in from Beverly Hills. I have my own uh, hernia center in Beverly Hills. But before uh, I focused solely on hernias, I was an acute care surgeon at uh, Big County, L.A. County, USC. So I for sure have seen tons of patients with um you know, acute onset hernia-related problems, and happy to share it all with you. Great. Thank you very much. Mike, would you introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Mike Saar. I'm a recently retired surgeon from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, where I practiced for 30 years. I headed the journal surgery, and the latter part of my career was primarily based on hernias, hernias, obesity, and that kind of stuff. So happy to participate. Great. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. I appreciate it. Um, You had both uh, mentioned your experience uh, with hernias, and before we get into the emergency hernias, I was wondering if you would both share your uh, technique. How often are you doing elective hernias? How much are your emergency hernias? And then uh, when you do elective, are you primarily doing open hernias or uh, laparoscopic hernias? Uh, Sharin, if we'd start with you. Yes, so most of my practice now is, um, thankfully, not too many emergencies. But I do spend about 80% of my time uh, treating complications from hernia repairs. And about 60% of my practice is inguinal. The rest is abdominal wall and pelvic. So um, I prefer the laparoscopic approach in general. Uh, if there's a complication to deal with, uh, the appropriate technique will be used either open lap or robotic. But my go-to um, favorite procedure is a laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair. And then for some patients, I do perform the open mesh or the open non-mesh repair. Yeah, I have a different approach. I'm 67. Uh, most of most of the hernias, the inguinal hernias I've done, uh, and I do some missionary work as well, have been open Lichtenstein-type repairs. Um, I will often do a preperitoneal approach for incarcerated hernias, inguinal hernias, especially for femoral, and especially in short people for inguinal hernias. Um, I don't do laparoscopic, but I would easily send someone for a laparoscopic approach under appropriate conditions. I'm not convinced that for the elective unilateral hernia patient that a laparoscopic approach, which requires full anesthetic, is any better that an open onlay type Lichtenstein repair that can be done under a local or attended local. So that's kind of my approach. And how about you, Dave? What is your practice like? Um, I typically would do sort of either open Lichtensteins or uh, TEP hernia repairs depending on uh, I would have a conversation with the patient and kind of discuss the pros and cons. If I'm honest, I think I prefer the open Lichtenstein better. Um, if you ask me what kind of hernia repair what I want, if I needed it done, um, I, I really don't know. I think uh, uh, either a TEP in the right, from the right surgeon or an open Lichtenstein would be my, my preferences. Great. Just to round it out, I probably do anywhere from four or five hernias electively every week. And, and same as Sharon, my preferred method is a laparoscopic. Um, but if, uh, if they aren't appropriate for laparoscopic, I do kind of a modified uh, McVeigh with mesh uh, for my open. And then, again, I'll do, like Mike, uh, either with a local anesthesia or a, like a, a MAC uh, with LMA. 
Now, when you say a modified McVeigh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> because I used to do because. I used to do mesh-based computers McVeigh, and I gave up on it because I didn't see any benefit. My approach is to do a dissection and uh, do a high ligation of an indirect sac if necessary, and then uh, I repair the floor with a running suture from the pubic tubercle up to the ring, uh, bringing down a uh, conjoined tendon to the shelving border, and then I bring that same suture line back down to the pubic tubercle, taking the uh, internal oblique over to the inguinal canal, excuse me, the inguinal ligament, and then an onlay mesh over top. So you don't go down to the Cooper's ligament? No, no, not down to the Cooper's ligament, just to the uh, shelving border. It's a modified bassini. I think that's that's one of the things that we should maybe start out and cover. And this is something that, uh, Mike, uh, I remember, you know, I still hear your voice in my head when I'm operating, that, that clearly define the anatomy. And, and the inguinal anatomy is, I think, one of the more confusing parts of the human body. And, and so clearly defining the terms, I think, is one of the areas where hernia literature and, and papers sometimes gets, gets muddy because people use different terms for different structures and different anatomic landmarks. <laughs> Good point, especially when we talk about inguinal ligament and uh, uh, shelving edge and conjoint tendon and iliopubic tract. Um, they're all a little different, aren't they? And everybody, uh, sometimes people uh, refer to the inguinal ligament as the shelving edge, or sometimes they talk about iliopubic tract um, and does it really make a difference? Probably that's a good thing we can, we can talk about. Where you, If you're going to put mesh in, does it matter whether you sew it to inguinal ligament, shelving edge, pubic tubercle, uh, iliopubic tract, uh, as long as you put it in to a closed space? And although we call it an onlay, it really is a little different than an onlay because there's the external oblique aponeurosis that lies on top of it. And I think that's the one of the few areas in my practice where a, uh, where you put a piece of mesh on top of a defect as a true onlay, uh, and I like it in the inguinal canal because the external oblique aponeurosis over it gets it away from the subcutaneous tissue, farther away from potential infection, and leaves it in a relative closed space. I agree with Mike completely. The, the terminology is really important. I read so many op reports, and I really sometimes don't really know what they did because the terminology is a bit off. But at the very least, you know, the iliopubic tract is a retromuscular structure. You would see that during a lap repair or an open retromuscular repair. The mm -hmm. conjoint tendon, the inguinal ligament, or what some people call the shelving edge, is an anterior um, structure that you would do, you know, as you would do with an, an open repair. Good point. A excellent point. And, you know, they're, they're different. They look differently if you approach it uh, uh, laparoscopically, either transperitoneal or through a TEP approach or through a preperitoneal approach. And uh, you're, you're right, you really don't see the iliopubic tract, if you're approaching it through an anterior groin approach, you see angular ligament. Uh, now, there are some people who in the past have transected the entire posterior inguinal floor, and then you can see Cooper's ligament. <laughs> you know, with a little bit of work, you can see the iliopubic tract. I used to do that, but that's so much more work, and I don't think it passes it for it. Right. One thing I wanted to do uh, today with our podcast is kind of walk through the emergency department into the operating room, and then some post-op complications. So starting with the emergency department, the call comes in. There's a patient with an inguinal hernia. It's incarcerated. There's some overlying skin changes. It's a bit concerning. Um, or they call in to say there's not overlying skin changes. So one of the questions I wanted to put out there is if you're going to the emergency room and your intent is that you're going to reduce the hernia, could you just kind of walk our audience through what techniques do you use and what do you think is the best way to get the hernia itself reduced? So, you know, the, the teaching to our residents are, is if you see any evidence for a possible strangulation, do not reduce it. You're basically pushing it back intraperitoneally, and um, it's harder to to assess the patient uh, as that disease progresses. Um, so then the question is, you know, how safe is it to reduce one that's clearly not 
strangulated. So normal white blood cell count, some pain, uh, really no evidence of infection, no white count. I'm sorry, no no um, temperature, no redness or erythema, um, no palpable warmth over the area. Those I think are just pretty clearly incarcerating little hernias. They may be painful. Some many are not. Some are chronically incarcerated if you ask them the right history. Um, so those I think are very safe to be re to reduce if they were acutely incarcerated. That will at least make the patient feel better. Um, there are techniques on how to do that successfully. You have to understand that the inguinal canal is a diagonal structure. It's usually not a straight shot backwards. And it's a long structure, so it's like a tunnel, so you can't just push something in there. You have to, um, I forget the term. There's a term for how you kind of tug on the structure to elongate it as you're pushing it in. Maybe Mike knows the term. Um, and that's the technique to reduce it. But if it's chronically incarcerated, there's really no, no need to reduce those hernias. Just accept the history. Yeah, I, uh, other than giving them something to relax them, having them lie down, uh, and with gentle pressure, I, I, I have nothing else to add. There is a term for that elongation, uh, and uh, of the inguinal canal, and I can't remember what it was. I just read about it two weeks ago. That's what you I'll get when you're retired. I'll remember it, I think, by the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to reiterate, I, I think this is a really important point, especially for our um, junior residents or emergency department colleagues who, who listen. Um, it's, it's not a pushing on this big mass that you see. It's pulling gently from essentially the direction of the pubic tubercle up to the anterior superior iliac spine, a nice gentle manner to kind of elongate what's been incarcerated to try to get it to slide back in. Correct. You know, one of the things that you can always use as a fail-safe, if there's any concern, you can laparoscope the patient. And uh, if you're really, really concerned or three or four hours later they're not doing good, it'd, probably, it'd be a lot easier to just laparoscope the patient. Um, but if I have any concern whatsoever, I, I I don't try and reduce it. I would just operate on the patient. He's going to need he or she's going to need the hernia fixed anyway, um, and you would certainly like to know that it's got strangulation when you do your operation, uh, so you can make different plans in terms of how you're going to eventually repair it. So we'll go through a couple of different patients, one being similar to what uh, Sharon had just described, acutely incarcerated, no overlying skin changes, no white count, no fever. You reduce it. What do you do with these patients? Do you watch them for the night? Do you send them home? Do they do a four-hour OBS in the ER? You know, that's a clinical right, judgment. Yeah. Uh, if if it's a very simple, straightforward reduction, um, easy, not, not too difficult, didn't take up too much of your time, you didn't have to give them tons of muscle relaxants, head down, ice, et cetera, then those you can just send to your local surgeon or your to yourself and um, have it repaired electively with, you know, adequate consent before surgery about all their different options. Um, if there's any evidence that there may be uh, a reincarceration, maybe this has happened multiple times, they've been to the ER multiple times already, um, or if there are some social issues where you want to just get it addressed, they can go back to work quicker, for example, then um, I think it's totally reasonable to admit them and have them repaired as an inpatient. Usually, the simple ones, you do not need to do them overnight, and you can schedule them electively like the following day. I, I have nothing else to add. David, what do you think? Yeah, I. <clears throat> this is something I always struggle with, and I think uh, this is one of those things where you have to trust your gut. If you're worried enough that you think you maybe should keep them overnight, then you do. And in those cases where you're that worried, maybe you ought to just be in the operating room. I mean, one of the one of the I think easiest tips that somebody told me once was, uh, if you're really worried about it, you take them to the operating room, you fix the hernia. If you don't see the bowel that was stuck, you can put a balloon trocar through the hernia defect and then put a laparoscope in and take a look and look at the bowel and, and reassure yourself. But but uh, I, I don't like relying on uh, hoping that things will turn out well. That typically has not been a good plan in my experience. But um, it's interesting to hear both of you say the same things, basically, and, and, and how to teach that judgment or that gut feeling is maybe the, the harder question. 
one one of the things I think we all re- realize when you've op- when we've operated on somebody with irreversible strangulation, the bowel is not in its normal size. It's thick. It's edematous. And it, it's hard for me to believe how you would reduce a truly irre- irreversibly strangulated hernia um, uh, that had become incarcerated uh, symptomatically. So if if something flips back into the abdomen between the time you're deciding to either reduce it spontaneously or to operate on the patient, I don't worry too much about those people. Um, unless they have a white count or something like that. But I can't remember a time that I've uh, been able to reduce an irreversibly strangulated loop of bowel anywhere. Um, now, my suspicion level would be much higher for a femoral hernia than an inguinal, uh, inguinal hernia. Um, much, much higher for a femoral hernia because we know that they can have a, a Richter's type hernia where there's just a little piece of bowel in it. Uh, so I would treat them a little bit more circumspect. I think that's a good point. A Richter's hernia would be the one, um, the one exception where it may just flop back in because it's one segment, but that segment is strangulated, and then mm-hmm. you end up with uh, perforations. So that would be one. Um, one uh, potential risk is if you're dealing with a Richter's hernia. Let me jump in with one question here, too. Uh, maybe start with uh, Shireen, if you would answer first. Is uh, What are your tips and tricks for identifying a femoral versus an inguinal hernia? And, and I say that in the context of, you know, the groins of Americans are becoming less reliable on external landmarks. It's harder and harder to distinguish, I think, above and below inguinal ligament in some patients. And are there any other tips and tricks that you use other than uh, than a good thorough physical exam, or there's any 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 pearls that you can share with us? Maybe start with you, Sharon, and then Mike as well. So yeah, so any pain. What I tell the residents is, if you feel any mass lateral to the to the pulse, that's not a hernia. So that is something else that you have to figure out. Um, that is not a hernia. So don't go cutting into that yet. Uh, all hernias that present to the ER will be a mass medial to the femoral pulse. In general, a femoral hernia is going to be lower um, than an ingual hernia, but some people think it's going to have to be like a big bulge in the upper thigh. It's often not. It's often higher than you think. And there are patients where the femoral hernia is where you think an ingual will be, but really their ingual hernia is going to be higher. So the way to look at your anatomy is, Feel for the ASIS, the anterior superiliac spine. Feel for the pubic tubercle. That line between the anterior superiliac spine and your pubic tubercle is your inguinal ligament. If there's a mass inferior to that, most likely that's a femoral hernia. And it doesn't have to be very far inferior. It could be immediately inferior to that. So most femoral hernias are not as low as you think they are on exam. And an inguinal hernia will be at or just above that um, line at about like a 60-40 uh, position, almost 50-50 along that line. And so ingle hernias are actually starting much higher than you think. Um, and I think that's important. We do so much imaging nowadays that these uh, examination points become so moot. But uh, it is very important to plan your operation if you do know ahead of time this is a femoral versus an inguinal hernia and um, examination and imaging will really help you. That's that's incredibly well put. Um, you know, if you, if you think about it, most, probably 98% of all incarcerated inguinal hernias are indirect inguinal hernias. So this incarceration, if it extends uh, towards the feet below the inguinal ligament, it should also extend up into the inguinal canal. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you draw that line of inguinal ligament and you cannot feel anything in the inguinal canal, it is not an inguinal hernia and it, it's going to be a femoral hernia. The only exception might be a recurrent medial based direct inguinal hernia that has a sharp ring through which you can get stuff that gets incarcerated, but they're they're rare, they're rare as hen's teeth, and 
um, I think it really is important to differentiate ephemeral from an inguinal hernia because, um, granted, you can fix it through a transinguinal approach, but to do it, you have to take down the entire posterior floor of the inguinal canal, and now you've created a direct inguinal hernia that you've got to fix in a way that's quite a bit more complicated than just fixing a femoral hernia. Um, so I think it's really important. And I, and I I tell, I used to tell all the chief residents when they would call at night and say I have an incarcerated inguinal hernia, especially if it's a female, to go back and feel and see if it goes below or above the inguinal ligament. Because much of the time, and especially in older women, and especially little old ladies, it's often a femoral hernia. And you do a transinguinal approach and you don't see anything, and then now you have to open the floor. And sometimes you even have to make an infrainguinal incision over uh, the femoral triangle. So it, it is really important to find out where it's from. And your point about it being not down in the thigh, as they show in the books, but if you go to the pubic tubercle, two centimeters lateral, two centimeters uh, towards the feet, that's where it is. And it's much higher than everybody everybody thinks and much higher than the books show. That's an excellent point, Shereen. Yeah. And also, the symptoms are a little bit different. Femoral hernias tend to have pain, not so much in the groin, but down the front of the leg, whereas groin pain can radiate, you know, in the, into the labia or testicle and around the back and... Um, it radiates in many more different regions than uh, femoral hernias, which is really down the front of the leg. These are all great pearls to take away. If uh, if we take our patient and we've determined in our physical exam that this is an incarcerated ingle hernia, it's not going to reduce. It's concerning enough you're going to go to the operating room tonight. What is your approach? Do you start with a, an inguinal incision, classic open approach, or do you do an exploratory laparotomy approach? And then uh, as a second part of that question, do you think there's a role for laparoscopic, uh, either TAP or TEP uh, repair of an acutely incarcerated inguinal hernia? Mike, can I start with you? Well, you're going to get a different opinion from me probably. If, if I'm going to operate on an incarcerated inguinal hernia and I'm at all concerned about whether or not the bowel is viable, I'm probably not going to use a transinguinal approach. I'm probably going to do it as an open preperitoneal approach, and especially if they're short people. And the reason I say that is I just got back from Guatemala uh, on a mission, and we must have done 60 hernias. Uh, I had one lady who I couldn't tell if it was inguinal or femoral. And the reason I couldn't tell is my colleague examined them, and I didn't, which is a bad thing to do. I say that up front. So I made a transinguinal approach, uh, and lo and behold, there was no hernia, so it's a femoral hernia. So when I opened the posterior floor, I had a heck of a time getting enough visibility in this short, obese woman such that had it been a, an irreversibly infarcted, piece uh, of loop of bowel, I would have had a very difficult time fixing it, even though I'd opened up the entire posterior inguinal floor. So I think a, a preperitoneal approach gives you a huge approach to it. You're behind the hernia sac. Uh, you, you get a much bigger area should you need to do a bowel resection, and you can clamp the vascular supply to the incarcerated part of the bowel before you reduce it. So I like the preperitoneal approach. Mm -hmm. Mike, for those that maybe haven't seen the open preperitoneal approach, why don't you give us a couple of uh, technical pros how to actually do that? Because I would yeah. be willing to bet there are people listening that have never seen an open preperitoneal approach. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I trained in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, and I spent some time in England with uh, – uh, group from, uh, with one of my colleagues from Milwaukee where Condon was. He was a huge proponent of that. So I did a bunch there. So what you do is you, you find the internal ring, which again is going to be halfway down the inguinal ligament and up about two centimeters. And then you make a transverse incision cranial to the internal ring. Go through the external oblique aponeurosis. 
with with retract the uh, rectus muscle medially, go through the um, internal oblique transfer salus, but don't go in the peritoneum, and then you should be able to sweep the peritoneum cranially. And if you put the patients with their head down, you should be able to sweep that up without any adherence to uh, the femoral vessels, the posterior inguinal floor, or Cooper's ligament. If they've got an incarcerated hernia, you won't be able to do that. Um, to do this well in an American, you need somebody who is able to retract the anterior abdominal wall anteriorly and inferiorly, especially if they're a big or heavy person, because it's a, it's a grunt to get down there. Once you see it's incarcerated, you can make an incision in the peritoneum, and now you've done a full peritoneotomy, but without a midline incision, just a transverse incision. Uh, you get great access to the bowel. If it's, if it's infarcted, you can clamp the blood supply before you reduce the hernia. Uh, to reduce the hernia, you may need to take down the inferior epigastric vessels. Uh, but then when you're finished, uh, it's an ideal setup to, to put a preperitoneal piece of some type of prosthetic material. Now, today we would use a bioprosthesis if there's infarction. If there is an infarction, I'd, I'd put a, I'd sew a piece of synthetic mesh to Cooper's ligament, uh, to pubic tubercle, then make a, a, a slit for it so the cord can go through it if it's in a male. So to the posterior side of the inguinal ligament, which should be called the iliopubic tract, and then you flop it up cranially so you reinforce your transverse incision as well. It's a beautiful repair. Um, so that's the way I'd go about it. Uh, I, you may, if it's a femoral hernia, have to make a counter incision in the, over the femoral triangle to um, help to mobilize the femoral canal uh, again laterally. I'm sorry, medially, not laterally because of the femoral vein, to reduce the content. But I think that's a, a more durable, better approach to fixing an incarcerated femoral hernia because you don't ruin the entire posterior inguinal floor. So that's the way I'd go about it. So I'm interested in other people's approach. Sharin, same, uh, same patient for you. It's incarcerated, concerning enough you're going into the operating room in an uh, urgent situation. Uh, how would you approach it? So uh, I'm glad Mike mentioned this technique. It's my absolute favorite technique for dealing with emergent ingle hernias. God, um, I love you. You're fantastic. Yeah, okay. it's the best <laughs> operation ever. Everyone needs to learn it. I, I tell these to my residents. I'm like, you got to learn this. This will save you multiple times over. Because it's a very simple procedure, especially nowadays that we do a lot of tap or laparoscopic ingle hernia, so the resin are at least exposed to that retroperitoneal anatomy. It's a little bit easier to understand it if you want to approach it open. But the key to emergency hernia surgery in the groin for the very least obstruction, possibly strangulation, is just deal with the obstruction. That's first. Hern people don't die of hernias. They die of complications of hernias. So deal with the obstruction. And that can be done laparoscopically or open. Um, my preference is to do these. If there's any hint of dead bowel, I do them open. I'm not very good at doing a bowel resection and intracorporeal anastomosis laparoscopically, especially in a sick patient. And I think the majority of surgeons that do laparoscopic surgery would not feel comfortable doing a full bowel resection um, laparoscopically. That really needs a lot of experience. So if you're, in the, if you're in the camp where you're okay doing laparoscopy, you're going to go in there, reduce the hernia, um, and then you can do a hernia repair, assuming there's no dead bowel, and you just deal with the obstruction. But if there is dead bowel, what Mike mentioned is the best repair. I encourage everyone to go to Scandalacus and Scandalacus's anatomy book. They have the Condon um, iliopubic tract repair very beautiful pictures and just read about it. It's basically 
a laparotomy, but in a transverse incision. And that transverse incision is finger press above your ingual ligament. So it's not where you would usually do an open ingual hernia pair, it's two finger breasts above that. You do a transverse incision like you would do in a kid for a laparotomy. You, you get in, and the beauty of this is, like Mike said, you can go totally intraperineal, like a laparotomy, deal with your bowel. Take out the dead bowel, reduce it, reassess it, do your bowel resection in open fashion. But you also have access to the retroperitoneal space where the actual hernia is, and you can choose to either do a tissue repair, which is a con it's just the iliopubic tract repair um, made famous by Conan and Nihus, or if you choose to, you can put some type of mesh, either biologic or synthetic, in that extraperitoneal space, like a laptop or a laptop. Um, same concept, but it's like a hybrid and you deal with the obstruction in the dead bowel, and you deal with the hernia at the same time if you wish to, and it's an absolutely great repair. I encourage everyone to at least read about it so you're familiar with it because it will save you in these really difficult times. Uh, what I see too often is that people approach strangulated or obstructed hernias through the groin because that's their comfort zone, and they do a mediocre bowel resection, which is at risk for leaking or not having good blood flow, and they do a mediocre hernia repair. Or they end up doing a laparotomy, so it's what some surgeons call a two-holer. you got like the groin incision and a laparotomy incision. And this open retroperitoneal approach um, that Mike mentioned gets rid of all that. And it's, you know, I can't ex express how wonderful that technique is and how little it's used in modern day. What about a laparoscopic approach? Can you do that? So with laparoscopy, of course you can go in. Um, if they're very obstructed, you have to make sure you enter safely because the abdomen's already distended and you risk um, entering and injuring distended bowel if there's an obstruction. So the technique of entry is important for um, laparoscopy in the face of obstruction. Usually I would do a Hassan and not a Varus technique, so open Hassan technique. And when you insufflate and you see the bowel obstruction, the other technique for that is there's going to be a distended, friable, um, thick bowel entering the hernia and a decompressed, more normal bowel exiting the hernia. When you reduce the hernia, grab decompressed, normal bowel. Do not grab the thick, very friable, um, distended bowel because that obstructed bowel will perforate or you're at risk of injuring it when you pull on it. So you got to pull on the, the other, the distal end. Then the, then the question is what to do with the bowel. If it perks up, then great. Um, all you have to do now is a hernia repair. And you can either do a TAP, a T-A-P-P, or a TEP, and just convert your, la your laparoscopy to a TEP, which is what I prefer to do. I don't like doing TEPs. Um, but, you know, both options are available. If there's dead bowel, then you either deal with it laparoscopically um, or you convert to open, uh, depending on your skill level laparoscopically, to, to do bowel resections and a staple anastomosis. Then the question is what to do with the hernia in the face of dead bowel, potentially contaminated space. I'm not an advocate of putting in mesh in that space. I think, you know, save it for another day. Um, there's good evidence that you can put mesh in the, in the extraperitoneal space with little morbidity. Um, multiple surgeons have looked at it, both in the U.S. and outside. Um, but, you know, dealing with mesh complications, like a mesh infection, is horrendous. So I'd rather just stage it and bring them back later for a hernia repair. You can even bring it back one or two days later, if you wish, or, you know, elect it for weeks. You know, one thing we should talk about is for somebody who has never made a relaxing incision, I don't suggest it because we had a discussion of this in our conference one time, and I had people who are my colleagues, not quite as old as I was, talking about uh, making a relaxing incision on the anterior rectus fascia, which is just not correct. And uh, I... I 
criticized this person, and then he sent me something from a recent book that showed a relaxing incision made in the anterior rectus fascia, which just was blatantly wrong. So I, I like your idea of coming back at a second day. That would be that would make much more sense. I think the dictum for all emergency surgery is deal with the emergent problem. And again, the hernia is not the problem, it's the bowel obstruction or the dead bowel. And it's perfectly okay for people to live with hernias. Now, if they've already obstructed once, maybe they'll obstruct again quickly. We don't really know the history of what happens to these patients if you sit on them. Um, the concern is that they'll obstruct again. Um, but, you know, if they're sick, if they're septic, don't waste your time fixing that hernia. Just deal with the emergency problem and save the hernia for another day. There's one interesting paper where they stuff the hernia with um, surgicil. Uh, that's a nice temporizer. In that mm -hmm. study, it was urologists that were doing prostatectomies, and they found uh, hernia at the time. And we all know that once you release that retroperitoneal space and open up the hernia, then a kind of a cult hernia becomes an actual clinical hernia after the prostate um, surgery. So these urologists were stuffing it with Surgicil or Nunit um, and said that their patients did fine. I'm not sure that works. I tried it once. It didn't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Patient had a recurrence. Um, but the point is, at least it'll save you. It'll buy you some time because it'll plug up the hole a little bit. But there's not enough scar tissue there to uh, prevent you from having an actual hernia in the future. So I have a quick question. So if you have done the open preperitoneal approach and you found dead bowel, you've resected, you've anastomosed, you've closed the peritoneum back up, could mm -hmm. you then at the same operation sort of close that incision and then do a standard open anterior approach to do a Lichtenstein? And theoretically, the planes are still separated. Would, would either one of you feel comfortable doing that kind of an approach? Uh, maybe, Mike, start with you first. Uh, if the bowel was really dead, unless I was going to do a tissue repair anteriorly, which I probably wouldn't do, I wouldn't um, – I wouldn't put a, a piece of prosthetic material anteriorly through an inguinal approach. And I am not yet convinced that putting a biologic prosthesis into the inguinal canal like you would for a Lichtenstein is as good as a synthetic prosthesis. And I'm amazed that that study hasn't been done as well as far as I know. Uh, yeah, I know uh, there are a couple people who have put mesh there and, and, and claimed that it worked really well. The surgeon in Texas that does, that's done that. But I haven't seen a good study that has convinced me that a bioprosthesis in the inguinal canal is equivalent to a prosthetic prosthesis in the inguinal canal. Anybody else have any thoughts? So the... Um I don't I don't think doing a definitive hernia repair in a contaminated setting is a good idea. So I would not burn any bridges. Uh, if you're already contaminated with dead bowel um, or even dirty from dead bowel, I would not cross-contaminate another space just to fix the hernia. I think you're asking for potential, at the very least, a surgical site infection, possibly a mesh infection, or if you don't use mesh, the actual site, a deeper surgical site infection, which will increase your risk of another hernia recurrence. Um, so I don't believe in burning those bridges. Uh, I'm a little bit more conservative than other surgeons. There has been one prospective randomized clinical trial using Stratus as a um, pig-based biologic for online mesh repair versus, uh, I believe it was against ultra-lightweight mesh. And their trial, the numbers looked similar in terms of recurrence. Um, and then once, what I've heard in those PIs that have enrolled patients in the um, in the trial, once the trial was closed, all the recurrences start showing up. So yeah. um, there is no evidence that biologic use, use of biologic tissue is equivalent um, to any type of synthetic uh, repair. And uh, I would only use it in a situation where. You want to do tissue repair, and you can't because they're morbidly obese or it's too big of a hole, um, and you feel that you do need something in the space uh, just to buy you some time without destroying any tissue planes. 
understanding that the recurrence rate is, is going to be higher than expected? You know, that's a, that's a fantastic point, point because stratus, or what I call pigoderm, lasts <laughs> about nine months to a year. And it's a great temporizing measure. And in some patients, probably it works. But you wouldn't expect the recurrences in six months. You'd expect them at a year and a half or two years. And uh, I think that's probably been borne out. But it's a great approach. I would not put Dexon mesh or Vicro mesh in because we all know that that is, that's a much, much more temporary. But Pigoderm is a great idea. Yeah. Let's talk about other organs in our hernia space. Um, we'll start off with, we mentioned urology. How should the surgeon approach it if the bladder has been pulled into the inguinal hernia and you end up with a bladder injury as you're doing your dissection? Oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> not ideal. It happens. It happens. What would you, if you're staring now at bladder mucosa, how do you manage that? I'll take this one. So uh, I'm not a fan of cutting the hernia sac. Uh, there's some thought that was promoted by Dr. Amid and others that cutting the sac um, will cause local peritonitis and therefore add to the pain postoperatively. And so as much as I can, I try and reduce the sac completely and do a high dissection, not a high ligation, um, for the ingual hernia, and that will kind of reduce your risk of injuring any type of organ from a sliding hernia, so either bladder or colon. Um, now, if you did cut and you saw bladder, usually that's okay. Urine is typically um, non-infected uh, and clean. You have to understand how to repair a bladder injury. You may want to ask your urologist about the importance of maybe leaving a fully catheter in for a couple of days to allow that bladder to heal um, without leaking. Um, but it's not as big a deal than if you cut through bowel. Couldn't agree with you more. I've, I've seen a number of bladders in it. All of them have been direct inguinal hernias, and they've usually been recurrent medial direct inguinal hernias, uh, where the bladder kind of comes up through that medial-based ring. And, and I don't know how else to call it. It's usually a fibrous ring just, just lateral to the pubic tubercle. And the bladder can get stuck there. And, and if you're not careful, you can get into it. I haven't done it yet, but I've been close a couple times. And it's always something we should keep in mind. And I agree with you. If I made a hole in the bladder, I'd fix it, and I wouldn't feel at all bad about putting a prosthetic graft in as long as it wasn't lying directly on the bladder. So in that case, I'd probably do some type of a tissue-based um, repair of the floor so we have some autogenous tissue between where the mesh is going to go and where the bladder repair is going to go. But that's something to keep in mind, no question. So I saw two of these in residency, not an injury, but um, both patients had enlarged prostate, both patients had chronically enlarged bladders, and then had a sliding hernia. Once we decompressed it with Foley, that bladder tissue sliding in and out, um, it was it had fooled the surgeon at the time until we realized this is bladder, this is what the tissue is that we're dealing with. And in neither case was there an injury, but I could certainly imagine an injury occurring. On the the other side, which Sharon had mentioned, if you do have a sliding hernia and you end you're you're in a hernia, it's an elective repair, it's a sliding hernia and you do get a bowel injury. And so now you've contaminated your field. How do you go forth with this? How do you fix the colon and then what are your thoughts on what you're going to do for uh, your repair? Shereen, why don't I do this one first since you got the yeah, heart? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, that, unfortunately, I have seen. So I would do, I did a um, a typical, uh, it's a, an acute cut, sharp cut of the bowel. I fixed the bowel, put it back in. Um, I did not feel comfortable putting a piece of synthetic mesh in at the same time. So I did a tissue repair on that patient. Uh you know, there's been quite a bit of work recently on lightweight, large, pore synthetic mesh. And had somebody told me that it would granulate through successfully prior to me seeing it, I would not have believed them because of what we know with 
a, a small, poor, heavyweight proline dish, but it works. But that is when the when the um, the infected mesh is exposed, and you can wet the dryer or put the thing on. If you put it in the inguinal canal, such that it's anterior to the posterior floor, posterior to the transversal fashion, it gets infected. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can, that would heal by itself. So. I myself would not feel comfortable putting synthetic mesh into the groin. I'd probably do a tissue repair and then come back if they developed a hernia and then do a formal synthetic-based repair. I would not use a biologic in that situation, primarily because of the cost and my concern that it wouldn't fix the hernia. Right. If uh, Now that I have had more time to think about my answer, uh, if it's a very minor injury, not too much contamination, maybe some, like a pinpoint hole. I would feel comfortable fixing that bowel injury and then doing a tissue repair. I would still not put in any synthetic. There are some evidence that you can get away with it, but um, like I said, 80% of what I do is dealing with hernia complications, and I prefer not to be my own self-referral for that. Mm-hmm. Um if it's a larger injury, I would just abort, deal with the injury, come back another day when you're dealing with a clean area, and then maybe the second time go in laparoscopically so you, you, you're not contaminating that space, or go back in open and use a lighter weight mesh, um, which has a little bit lower risk of contamination and infection than the heavier weight meshes. So I have a quick question for both of you. Um, has the development of these so-called biosynthetics, or maybe maybe a better term is the longer-term absorbable synthetic meshes, things like the the uh, oh, what is the Bio A from Gore? I think and there's the Phasix mesh mm-hmm. and those types of things. Have, have those changed your thinking about this? Uh, sort of your algorithm of how you deal with this, and and should it? I mean, are these things maybe the magic bullet that we've been looking for, or what are your thoughts on, on those? Yeah, the the uh, long-term absorbable synthetics, um, BioA and Phasix are the two main ones. Um, yeah. So they're all being studied. Uh, there's no evidence that uh, that has convinced me yet that they're any better than biologic tissue. They all absorb, and um, uh, you know, if you do a really good hernia repair and you use this as a buttress, then maybe it will improve your outcome than if you didn't use it. But to be as a – for sure you can't use it to to uh, bridge any any hernias. For ingual hernias, um, they're very, very expensive. Phasics is almost as expensive as a biologic. Um, the data on that is still pending. They just presented their uh, 18-month data um, at the American Hernia Society at three – or sorry, at stages two weeks ago. So um, there's a fair number of hernia recurrences. Now, um, is it worth putting it in there? Because if you didn't use the, uh, any mesh, you would have a higher recurrence rate. We don't really know that answer because it's a single arm study. But um, I'm currently not using any absorbable uh, synthetic products. Um, many of them have come and gone in the market, Siri being one of them. Uh, Phasics, you know, is has a barred behind, and they're doing really well in terms of actually having surgeons use a product. But I think it's just sending. It's basically like Mike. You can tell me the the science behind. You know, basically you're shifting the curve over, so you're not recurring at three months. You're recurring at one and a half years um, when the product is basically gone. So I'm not a fan. We need more data. I don't use it. It's very expensive. Cool. Full disclosure, I'm a PI on that trial. Full <laughs> uh, disclosure. Okay. So in, in a trial setting, I'm okay to look at it, but uh, I don't use it electively. So I'll echo everything that Shireen just said. The thing that has always bothered me is the concept with the biologic is that you put down the functionally an extracellular matrix which attracts in the body's native healing properties. Sounds great. Um, the concept of getting rid of all the cells with uh, pigoderm or alloderm 
and having the basement membrane there to attract in all sounds fantastic. And I was a huge enthusiast when they first came out. The problem is we're talking about patients who have an abnormality in the way they heal. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a, an acquired hernia. Now, here we're going to be talking about direct inguinal hernias or for instance, incisional hernias. And every time I've given the argument to uh, one of the hernia uh, company spokespersons, they've avoided the issue. So here we're taking and we're relying on the body's ability to heal something when it hasn't healed it in the first place, like with a abdominal aortic aneurysm or um, you know, smoking or uh, other people that are hernia formers. Now, I kind of like the concept of BioA and Phasix if it's cheaper than Pigaderm or Alloderm or Zenmatrix or, you know, pick your, pick your biologic. Because again, I'm, I'm using it, I would be using it not as a definitive repair, but as a longer acting patch. And I've used, uh, before I retired, I used some BioA to span defects that otherwise I would have had to use a twice as expensive piece of Pigaderm or Zen Matrix or call it what you want, knowing full well I'm going to be coming back to fix a hernia on them. So if they're cheaper, I, I'd use them, but uh, they're just not, they're not going to be any better than a biologic. And you're putting them in a hernia former, and if they've got an abnormality either in the initial laydown of collagen and its orientation or more likely in the long-term remodeling and reconstruction of the extracellular matrix. Those people are hernia formers, and, and you're putting in something that relies on a normal healing system, and they don't have it. So that's kind of, that's the way I think of it. Um, so let me ask you guys something. Do you think there are people that are, quote, hernia formers? That is, they have an abnormality in either lay down or reabsorption remodeling. Because I've, I've asked this question to a number of herniologists, and they've wavered a little bit. So what do you think? Even in just the few years I've been doing this, it seems like it's, I think that people form hernias. I think guys get them on both sides. I think it runs in families. It's my dad has one, my uncle has one, my brother has one, I have one, my kid has one. And mm-hmm. you can take someone who has the same body shape, physical activity levels, and they never get a hernia. And you take another guy, same body shape, same physical activity, they get hernias in their 30s. I think it's a, a tissue yeah. defect. What do you think, Sharon? I totally agree. Uh, we know that there is a biologic reason for many people's hernias where there's a collagen mismatch. They have more of the weaker collagen, less of the mature, stronger collagen. There's MMPs have been looked at. Um, so there's there's a few um, areas in Europe and in the U.S. where they're actually looking at the kind of tissue level um, and thereby the genetics of it. We do know it does run in families. Um, in my experience, as I see so many women, I've noticed that there's a stronger link, um, stronger genetic link if there's a female in the family that has a hernia than if there's a male. Um, but, yeah, uh, for sure there's a genetic component. In fact, when I have patients ask me, why did I get my hernia? My first answer is you probably are genetically predisposed to it. And that I can't do anything about. Now let's look at all the other things that we can we can look at that are uh, correctable that can help reduce your risk of forming a hernia given you already have a genetic, genetic predisposition. So um, for sure, I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about the genetics of it as more research is done because maybe that will um, prevent us from having some of these disasters where there's complete loss of domain and so on after multiple hernia repairs. Do you think it would change, if you, if you had identified a hernia former, and they're coming in for their first repair, would you change your technique, use a different mesh, anything you would do to try to prevent them from being a recurrent hernia patient uh, as opposed to just someone who comes in with a hernia? I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll address that right off the bat. Yeah. If you're going to do an open abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, mm-hmm. you probably should reinforce the, the midline incision with some type of prosthetic material. Um, 
and people say, well, it increases the risk of infection. Well, you're putting something in the vascular tree that's a prosthetic material. If that's going to get infected, your incision, your mesh is going to get infected. And if you put it retromuscular, you put it in a closed space. And I know of two good prospective randomized trials that show there's a marked decrease in the incidence of incisional hernia repair. One, one little point I want to bring out, is, and I've been, I've been unable to answer this in my own mind. How many of you have seen a direct inguinal hernia in a female? I've, I've seen a lot seen of females, two. but it's very rare. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen two. One of them came in, and I know she had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And the other one, when I found it was a direct inguinal hernia, I put a piece of mesh in, did a typical uh, uh, Lichtenstein repair, and then worked her up post-op, and indeed, she also had Ehlers-Danlos. But why do men get direct inguinal hernias at their hernia formers, and why don't women? I can't answer that. That's a good question. I mean, we know the female pelvis is a little bit different. Uh, male, you know, being narrower and maybe more vectors of force um, pushing in that region. But, yeah, that, I don't know. That's a very good question. We should see more um, if if the mm-hmm. two genders were equal in terms of hernia formation. Yes, you would think so. Because yeah. we, know, mm-hmm. we know there are women who are hernia formers for a midline incision. Mm-hmm. They don't get direct inguinal hernias. We, we looked up in, at Mayo whether people who had uh, an incisional hernia had a higher rate of direct inguinal hernias because we have a prospective ongoing database, and indeed they do. Uh, and I know that one of the one of the groups in in Europe um, by a guy named Klingy, uh, yeah. who's an incredible guy. They looked at the type, they looked at midline, uh, types of, um, uh, collagen in patients who had a direct inguinal hernia. And even if they didn't have a hernia in the midline at the time they did the biopsy, they had abnormal collagen there. So it's really cool stuff. I mean, that's the future, isn't it? Is this an epigenetic phenomenon or is it a genomic based phenomenon? And we know that smoking is epigenetic. But some of these others are probably multiple SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that uh, don't show up, kind of like in me. I had a direct inguinal hernia. So uh, on one side, I haven't developed one on the other, but probably I will at some point. And people with the diastasis rectus, they also have a higher incidence of incisional hernias and inguinal hernias. So that's a really cool part of hernias, if you ask me. <laughs> One other question. How many of you use the hernia mesh system so that there's a, you know, that thing that looks like a chimney in between the two layers? Is it, did any of you use that? The chip? You mean the Ventralux? Uh, proline hernia mesh Oh, proline system. hernia system. Yeah. The, the anterior, any, posterior, yeah. Yeah. Any of you use that? Yeah, I have used it, but I... I, I don't like it. Uh, I've not adopted it for my practice. I, I don't know if that's just personal preference, but uh, I just like a straightforward right. patch. Carrie, how about you? I had, a, I had one attending at the VA in D.C. We saw a lot of hernias there, uh, and he would use it. And I, I liked it. I mean, once I got used to the technique, um, I, I was very uncomfortable because some of the dissection is a bit blind. And as a, at least as a resident in training, I, I didn't like that part at all. Um, but as I got to know the anatomy, got more comfortable. Uh, it, it seemed uh, to be a really nice repair. Uh, it's not something I've adopted in my current practice. Shreen, how about you? I I never got trained in it, never used it. Um, it was something that uh, Arthur Gilbert uh, yep. invented with Ethicon, and they had a really good run of it where they were they were actually training surgeons to, on how to put it. It's kind of like the mesh plug. If you put it in well, then it's a very good repair. The problem is it started becoming more popular, and then surgeons were just doing a, mostly the, the posterior aspect where there is the retroperitoneal dissection wasn't adequate enough to accommodate for the mesh. The mesh would ball up. So 
Yeah. I've taken yeah. a lot of that mesh out um, because of the meshoma, the, the balling up of the mesh that causes chronic pain, but I've never used it myself. And that was really what I found with that posterior dissection is it was we would dissect and then stuff an entire lap tape in that posterior space, and if the entire lap tape wouldn't fit, we hadn't finished our dissection. And it, yeah. it really needed to be clear. And then once it was clear, it sat very pretty. It was really pretty. But yeah. you could tell sometimes if we tried to force it early, it just it would exactly describe kind of crumple and ball up. Um, and then we would take it out and just keep doing uh, more dissection. It's a good way to get your urology colleagues mad at you, to put it there. <laughs> you know, how about a mesh plug? Do any of you guys use a mesh plug? I used to. Uh, I don't for similar reasons. I mean, I, there's been a handful of cases that I can remember where I found a huge internal ring and I was afraid that it wouldn't close. But um, for the most part, I, I feel like I can get uh, a reasonable closure with just the patch. I've really gone away from the using the plugs. Mm-hmm. Now, I got trained in doing it um, with uh, up, at, up at Rush. And... You know, it sounded great when it first came out, but again, similar to the PHS, the proline hernia system, I think uh, it's fraught with problems. It's way too much mesh, first of all, I think, uh, to put in the groin, and we know there's a lot of complications associated with it. That said, it's still a very popular repair, probably one of the most popular repairs done in the United States, Uh, so Mm -hmm. we don't really know the denominator of um, how many are put in versus the numerator, which is how many we take out. Uh, but I've taken out significantly more than I've put in. I have one other quick question. Do any of you roll up a piece of mesh and put it in a small femoral hernia defect when you do an elective femoral hernia or a non or an incarcerated hernia that is just fat? I do, but it's because I learned it from you. (laughs) That's why I do it. (laughs) <laughs> I learned it from the literature. It's not me. You know, I, I was just in Guatemala, and we did four femoral hernias. The defects were less than a centimeter. The amount of fat outside was about the size of a 50-cent piece, and it just worked beautifully. And when I asked the resident, who was a fourth-year resident, she didn't. She had never heard of it. Um, right. It's a it's a great repair to to do in anybody except for a pregnant female, which I did one time, and I will never do that again. There was Why so much blood supply. Oh, there were oh, all these blood vessels down. Oh, my pregnant. God. I, right. And I was doing it under local because she was pregnant and she had a symptomatic hernia. So, yeah. Uh, so the again. cigarette plug, that's the mm-hmm. cigarette plug. Uh, about four or five years ago, the definitive paper on femoral hernias came out that the gold standard should be laparoscopic or retroperitoneal repair. Um but with the cigarette plug, especially for these small ones, maybe in a thin patient or, uh, you know, something you just want to stay out of the belly, let's say, um, the key to the cigarette plug is make it short. Don't make it so long that it could uh, bother the patient in terms of uh, movement of their leg because it can kind of impinge if you put it in too deep. The second key point is roll it up. Um, Short, so maybe three, two or three centimeters should be the, the how deep it goes, and no more. Roll up the mesh and then let it unfold, mm. unroll in that hole. Don't keep it rolled up. That'll fill that space just enough, um, and then put in your sutures. Obviously, don't put any sutures uh, immediately because your vessels are there. So you put one into lacuners um, inferiorly and superiorly. And then about a third of patients have a aberrant obturator artery that runs just deep to that femoral um, space inferiorly. So don't catch that in your suture either. Um, <laughs> be very careful. You feel for a pulse before you put your suture in or, or be very careful with it. But, yeah, it's a great infrainguinal femoral hernia yeah. approach. Yeah, wonderful because it's, it's – it's very little trauma to the patient. Um, yeah. And the residents love it, I can tell you, because they've never seen that anatomy. Yeah. This has been a fantastic talk on hernias. I feel like I've really learned a lot, and it's been nice to, to go through your thought processes. I really appreciate both of you 
joining us uh, to do the podcast. Uh, before we go, I just want to give you each the opportunity, if there's any other closing pearls or uh, takeaway messages uh, that you want to make sure, uh, you know, trainees coming through uh, get the message and give you an opportunity. Uh, Mike, do you want to start with you? Um, make sure it's a, it's not a femoral hernia before you open up the groin. That's prim- my primary uh, primary pearl. And my pearl is deal with a life-threatening problem Good first and don't dilly-daddle with uh, whatever is not a life-saving procedure. Good for you. What a, that's, that, that's, that's even more important. Thank you. I think this is great. Thank you both very much for yeah. joining us. Thank you so much. No. I enjoyed it. This is such a common problem and so many ways to mess this up, it seems like. So it's, uh, it's been great, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your wisdom as well. So thank you both. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.